let's adore Him. Oh, come, let us adore Him. Oh, come, let us adore Him. Christ the Lord. Great is your name. Great is everything that you do and have done. Praise and honor and glory be to you. May the Spirit of the Lord pour upon us in a double portion. And may we leave this place changed and empowered to do something mighty for you. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. You'll see I am clicker-free because the media is going to help me. And they're going to do it, and they can't do a worse job than I do myself because I notice... Half the time I'm looking here and, oh man, I'm three slides behind. So I am so thankful that they are taking up the challenge because uh, I hate that clicker. Um, I'm sure some people like it, but not me. Robert Kearns. Does anybody know the name Robert Kearns? Anybody? Is it familiar? Robert Kearns. I'm not talking if he's a family member. But does anybody know or remember the name of Robert Kearns? Well, there's actually a movie in the early 2000s that was made after his life struggle. Now, I'm not going to tell you what that movie is to to key you in, but a few years ago, now Robert Kearns has been dead since 2005, but a few years ago, his case came back up, and his son is still furious about what happened to Robert Kearns. Um, I don't know if any of you are looking his name up, but, but Robert Kearns, it, it's a new day and age where you can just look this up. But Robert Kearns got into a long, drawn-out court case with the big three. And these big three were the car, the car companies. We had Ford and Chrysler, and I don't know who the third one was. I don't know if it was Mercedes or, or who. Uh, But there were three car companies that fought with him. Because in 1969, he brought his, I guess, what would you call it, a prototype to them and said, I know how to make your wipers not just go like this, but go, wait for a second, go. And we call that the intermittent washer wiper, windshield wiper, washer wiper, windshield wiper. So he said, I think we can do this. Well, they said, "Eh, I don't know if that's really for us. And he went to several car companies. We don't really think that that, nobody's going to want this. Just like this. But in 1969, I believe it was 1969, he noticed in production that there was an intermittent windshield wiper. Now, he had filed for his patent in 1964, but they didn't care because they're a big company. And you know that we, we, fight, we see movies about this, that, that big companies, sometimes they push out the little guy. Well, in his details, because his court case started in 1978, The most that they were willing to pay him was 11 cents 
per windshield wiper, per car. And that's, that's the most he got paid for that. Well, as you find out, he fought, and if, if you ever watch the movie, the movie's called Flash of Genius. It's, it, it's a good movie. I don't know if it's all 100% accurate. I, I'm sure it is since Hollywood made it. But, um, but according to the movie, he actually lost his family over this because he would not give up. And he kept fighting and fighting and fighting. And, and, and it's believed that after he finally lost his family, they eventually settled, and he probably accumulated about $30 million. Um, but they believe that he could have settled for more, that the, that the car companies were willing to pay for more, but he would not let this fight go because he felt, I need to make a point that this is not right. Now, we know that he ultimately, if this is true, he lost his family. It was a sacrifice. He lost his family. In, uh, I believe it was in the late 70s when he noticed that Mercedes-Benz was copying it too, that not too long after he had a nervous breakdown. There is sacrifice all around us. And this guy made a huge sacrifice. Now, later on, these inventors started talking about this guy and saying, you're the reason why I get paid more for my invention. It's Robert Kearns who paved the way for these other inventors so that they could get dollars for their units. And, there, and there's still this fight. The, the reason it came back up is that there's a fight. There's a sacrifice you need to make if you are going to, if you believe in something and you are going to change the world, there's a sacrifice you need to make or change your own little world. Now, entrepreneurs, because I believe he was an entrepreneur, he was an engineer at first and an entrepreneur second. Are any, do we have any entrepreneurs here in this? All right, right there, I guess all one hand. Um, entrepreneurs, it's believed, uh, I was reading, do you ever read the, I, I don't know what you call it, a journal, it's entrepreneur.com, I don't know, that's the website. But I was reading an article that said that the, the five main sacrifices that entrepreneurs, the trend is they always make these sacrifices, are these, if you are going to, to be an entrepreneur. Stability. You're starting, with a new, you're starting a new venture, and there's no guarantee you're going to succeed. The foundation of your company, even your idea, if your idea and plan sound solid, is rocky at best. And there's no telling which direction your business is headed until you're several months or often much longer into running things. Would you agree? Okay, I got a thumbs up on that one. Second is work-life split. When you become an entrepreneur, the lines between your working life and your personal life will blur. You'll start thinking about businesses even when you're away from the office, sometimes because you want and sometimes because you can't help it. All right, thumbs up. Number three, income. 
This goes along with the stability sacrifice, but for the first few years of your business, you're probably not going to be making much money. All right, thumbs up. The next is sleep. Sleep is vitally important, but no matter how hard you try to preserve healthy sleeping habits, you're going to sacrifice some sleep in order to run your business. Oh, she said not really. All right, so we'll put it right here. Um, fifth is comfort. Being the boss of your own company means the buck stops with you. I don't know, thumbs up. Sacrifice. Sacrifice means rewards, but not always immediate. And a lot of us don't like the word sacrifice. We don't like to have sacrifice. We don't want to do sacrifice. We don't want to be called to sacrifice. But our whole lives are based on sacrifice. Actually, this list right here, this list of the entrepreneurs reminds me a lot of parenting. Because guess what? Um, I think that every parent out there has uh, sacrificed like, their stability, probably mental stability, emotional stability. That's what's happened with our kids, uh, on us. Um, the work-life split, I will tell you, I've, I've always struggled with where my personal life and my in my professional life, you know, because I, I want to spend time with my kids, but it's important that I work. Income, oh, we know that happens. Uh, I think it was estimated that a child, this was a few years ago, a child costs about, by the end of graduation of high school, about $250,000. And I'm, yeah, that's it, but that's public school, child. Now, if you're a private school child, you know that's bumped up higher. Um, you know, if you're Rod's child, because he just gives out, he dishes out money, it's probably close to the seven figures. Sleep. If you are a parent, you know that sleep is sacrificed. Not just at the very beginning, but as you worry about your child. And comfort. And then I often, no, not often, sometimes we talk about the days where we would just go to, just go to Barnes and Noble and just read or do something, you know, but now if we take our kids there, can I buy this? Can I buy that? I mean, it's, and, and I know it's not unusual. I don't think my kids are unusual. I'm sure it's fairly common, but you sacrifice comfort. The Lord called for the largest sacrifice of Abraham. I want you, if you have your swords, to turn to Genesis chapter 22. We're just going to read this as a chunk. Genesis 22. Most of you know this story, if you have some kind of biblical background. Genesis chapter 22, and we're going to start with verse 1. And it says this, Sometime later, and we don't know what that timeline was. By the way, the previous chapter is the birth of Isaac. 
And then also where he sends Hagar and Ishmael to live in a different camp. Sometime later after this, God tested Abraham. And he said to Abraham, Abraham, and Abraham says, here am I. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountains I will tell on the mountains I will tell you about. Early in the next morning Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut through the wood, cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day Abram looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. And the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them, told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is still said, on the mountain, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The first verse of that says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. Now, in your ideas, in our ideas, we almost, or at least in my own head, I can't speak for you, in my own head, I, I originally used to think, why does God test? By the way, that word, both in Hebrew and in Greek later, of test can be translated as tempt. God tests Abraham. And in our Western thinking, we don't understand why in the world God would test somebody, knowing that a lot of times we will not pass that test. In Hebrew thinking, it's quite a bit different. In Hebrew thinking, testing is not to evaluate. 
or at least for a teacher not to evaluate students to see how successful you will be. In Hebrew, it is that you learn how far you can go. It is for self-evaluation to learn that the boundaries of what you think are actually further than where you think you can go. So it's so that you learn my potential actually is further. Let me give you an example. When both of my kids, when we both, both of my kids went through this, um, when, they, when I would bring them into a pool, you know, we, we go, they love going to hotels, you know, like I'm rich or something. They love going to hotels. So it, it was nice when we go on interviews. And when I, you know, when I get to bring them on, on these trips, because then there's, we always arrange that there's a pool in the, in the hotel. But when they first started getting into the pool, I would have to hold them. And they would not let go. They would scream even if they had this floaty device Upon them, they would not let go. I mean, if I even said that I was, you know, if they felt that I was going to let them go, they would grab on my neck and, and scream. But I, I wanted to test them. Not so that they fail, but I wanted to test them so that they realized, first, that they can do more than they think they can do. So... I would let them go and then catch them again. Or eventually I'd started prying off the little one. I'm not going to mention his name. But just prying him off. And eventually it came to the point where there was one of our friends down in Texas that he would just jump into the water. And he had that floaty. But he'd jump in and, and, and he became comfortable enough. But that doesn't happen without a test. And the test is not to see if he's going to pass or fail, because do I want him to fail at swimming? Do I want my kids to fail? Do I want to even be able to evaluate if they will fail? No. I want them to learn this you can do, and if you can't, we need to get lessons. And so Madison started teaching herself how to swim. And, but it, at first it took, okay, you're there, and I'm three feet away. You push off the, off the edge, and you come to me. Okay, I'm going to back up one step, and then you do it again. And you do it again, and I go further. And then, she, you know, she would test herself. This is the Hebrew idea of testing. We do this in weightlifting a lot. And, and when people work out, they have this thing they call a max. Does anybody know what a, you know? You're going to squat, you're going to bench, whatever you're going to do, you're going to do the max. And the max is, and you might fail at it, but it's sort of to gauge yourself how far. And, and when we do our maxes, it's not to stay here, but it's to go to the next level. So we know, okay, I just squatted 315. I am going to try for 335, or I'm going to try for 365. And, and you, you incrementally... Go forward. That is what a Hebrew idea of a test is. But we do not have this idea. Hence, we sort of blame God. Why is he, or, or we ask him, why is he testing? No, he's just trying to prod you to go further. But this one event, as we know, changes the history 
of Israel. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, it says this, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his, own, his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner, speaking of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. And then in James chapter 2, it says this, Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scriptures were fulfilled. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. This is the one event. Now, remember, we've talked for several weeks about Abraham. Abraham was a weak man. He was weak. Hey, Abraham, we don't have any kids. Sleep with my servant, and then we'll have kids. All right, honey. Hey, God said, just you and your family. Maybe we should bring a lot. All right. Hey, God will provide for you as you go through this journey. But, but God, they'll kill me. Hey, hey, Sarah, could you just say you're my sister? He was a weak, afraid little man. And God said, I do not want you to end up this way. I do not want you to follow the path of Adam and distrust that I can replace or I can resurrect. So I am going to make a test for you to know how far you can go. So let's get into the text. There is one thing that should stand out to you that stood out to me one of the first times I read this, that Isaac was his only son. Did you not read that? It says there, it says, go and take your son, your only son, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Is that a slap in the face to Ishmael? Take your only son. Remember, he does have a son named Ishmael. But he says here, take your only son. And then he, he doesn't only say that. He says, take your only son whom you love. And remember, in, in Hebrew and in Greek, there are no punctuation points. So this technically could say, take your only son whom you love. So maybe that's a slap in Ishmael's face. Take the only son you love. Yeah, that's Isaac. Because maybe you don't really love Ishmael. Take the only son you love. Actually, the, the word in Hebrew for only is yachid, right? You guys understand that, yachid, which is probably from the root word echad. But yachid, literally, yachad means to be united. It's somebody that you are so united with that it's almost exclusive. And maybe that's what God is saying. You have bound your heart up with this boy. And you have become so exclusive with him. 
take him because I know you love him. And you're going to offer him as a burnt offering. Can you imagine what he's thinking? What is Abraham thinking? I will get to what, remember we, we visited this book, the book of Jasher. I'll tell you what that says in a minute. So he says, take this one that you've united with and go to the land of Moriah. Now, the land of Moriah could mean the, that the Lord teaches. The Lord is my teacher. Moray is the word for teacher. Or it could mean that the Lord sees. And I will tell you later why I believe it. That's what it means. The Lord sees. And so he says, take him and you will make this burnt offering out of him. Now, in Judaism... There is a word, and, and you'll see it up here. It's called the, the korbanot. Do you remember the, the story where Jesus is saying, he said, you are following the traditions. He's talking to the Pharisees, and he says, you're following the traditions, and you're, you're following the traditions at the sake of the commandments of God. And he says, the, the commandments say, honor your mother and your father. Does anybody remember this? He says, honor your mother and your father, but you say... I will follow Corbin, which means sacrifice. And I will, instead of taking care of them financially, I will take care of the church. Well, that comes back to them. So they were sort of saying it so that it, it stays in their pocket versus going to their mother and father. And this Corbinot just means sacrifices. But the root word for Karav means to bring near. This is where they were failing, is because God says, honor your mother and your father because I want you to be near to them. And they missed the point of the carbonate because they would say, no, 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 I, I need to pay to the church. He said, no, 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 I want you to be near. In here, I wonder if, if God is, is not just testing them, but he says, this experience here will bring us nearer because if you get through this, you're going to need me. And maybe it will bring you and your son closer. Because this is an experience that only you two will be able to experience. According to Jasher, this is what happened. Now, Sarah is what we would call nowadays a helicopter parent. And we understand she couldn't have kids until she was 90, all right? God finally gave her a parent, and she wanted to wrap him up in bubble wrap and, and take him around. And it doesn't say that in Jasher, by the way. Uh, but it says that when he got the command, he says, now how in the world do I tell Sarah? that this is what I got to do. She has waited 90 years. And now she's past 100. You know, he's a young man now. Isaac is believed to be a young man. And now he's, he's, he's old enough. And this is the love of her life, probably more than me. She, her soul and his soul are wrapped into together. How am I going to say this? So he, he devises this plan and he says, he says, Sarah, I want you to know that the Lord brought me to where I am 
through Shem. Remember Noah's son Shem? Remember we, we had talked about that, that he, according to Jesher, stayed with Noah and Shem for 40 years. And that kept him away from the idolatry. So he said, I think our son needs to do the same thing. Don't you think that's a good idea? He's just sort of waiting. And she just starts bawling. But she says, yes, this is a good idea. We, we need to do this. I want my son to be a righteous man. But she wrestles with this. And, and, and it says at night, she would sleep with Isaac by her. And just as he slept, she would kiss him and cry all over him. And then she told Isaac, she said, I don't know, because your, your father was with Shem for 40 years. This is probably the last time I will see you. So she knew. Now, he had lied to her about what was really happening, but she knew that this was the potential of the last time. And so he ends up taking her, uh, he takes Isaac with two people. Now, tradition sort of is, it varies on, on who those two people are. Some say they're just two servants. One is his top servant, Eleazar. Some believe that Ishmael also was one of them that went along. And it says in Jasher, and actually I even read this in Patriarchs and Prophets, that the enemy, Satan, started prodding at Abraham, saying, what are you thinking? And so the temptations came here. Okay, his wife is bawling her eyes out and is brokenhearted. And it says Satan disguised himself as an old man and said, why would you do such a foolish thing? Why would God... Wait all this time to provide such a miracle baby just to have him killed. Can you understand the logic? Can you understand why this was a temptation? And then he also said, when, when, he, when he realized that he couldn't get to Abraham, he went to Isaac. Hey, Isaac, do you happen to know what's going on here? I mean, do you really know what's going on? Hey, why don't you ask him where the, where the lamb is? Do you, do you see? He's like, hey, Dad, I, I see the wood and the fire, but I don't see a lamb. Do you understand? That it might have been that this was at the prompting of the enemy, saying, yeah, I think you might want to ask him because you're the lamb. And then it also was believed that Ishmael was part of the temptation. That Ishmael started, that Ishmael found out what was happening and started bragging. Hey, all the possessions, I'm going to be the one of the covenant because my brother's out of the way. And so all this is playing in Abraham's head, just louder and louder. And he didn't know what to do. But then it says that he rejoiced in being called to this that he knew that Isaac was, was blessing him. And if you believe what Jasher says, it actually says that he had a dialogue with Isaac. Abraham and Isaac started hashing this out. And Isaac said, I will be faithful. I rejoice that I had life as long as I did. I will do whatever he says. 
So this is not just an honor story for Abraham, but this is an honor story for an obedient child. Are you hearing this, children? An obedient child that no matter what the call was, he said, I will do this. I will follow no matter what the... Because guess what? God didn't talk to him. Do you know what I'm saying here? God didn't say that to him. You know, that was hard. I, I, open it up a little bit to you, and I've told a couple of you this. It's harder on kids with this call than on me or on my wife. The hardest thing I, with us is watching our kids go through this transition time. And we have heard the words, I didn't make the choice to move. They didn't get the call. I did. And we can say, well, no, the Lord called your whole family, but guess what? They don't understand that. So for Isaac to go and trust his parents enough, or his dad enough, the Lord told me that I'm going to kill you. Well, I don't know if we're listening to the same Lord, all right? But he still, he says, I will rejoice in whatever. Because he was old enough. Remember, Abraham is probably, with some reckonings, he's, he could be up to 130 years old. And he isn't going to be living that much longer. And Isaac is, you know, he's a young man. He could have, all right, get out of my way, fool. He pushes him out of the way. But he stays true. Now, this is, the, this is where the exciting part comes. I'm sorry if I've bored you the rest of the way. This is the exciting part. Isaac, and some of you already know this, Isaac is believed to be a type of what Jesus would do later. I mean, look at the similarities here. He says, take your only son whom you love, the only begotten son. And he takes the wood that he would be sacrificed upon and puts it on his back. Do you not see that? What did Jesus carry on the way that he would be sacrificed? Wood. You know, that's what they called it. He carried the wood that he was going to be sacrificed upon. Have you noticed that also, were the servants allowed to go with him? With them? No. He said, this will be an experience that only father and son can understand together. We will never understand really what happened between father and son there. Actually, if we take this typology to the next level, there's father, son, and what would kill Isaac? What would kill Isaac? A knife, right? What would the knife represent? What killed Jesus? Sins, right? The sins of the world placed upon him destroyed Jesus. Who killed Jesus? Each one of us? Let me ask you this. Do any of you have the power to put your sins on somebody else? 
No, I wish I could. There's some people I would. No, I'm just, I might sprinkle some over here and over there. But we don't have that power. There's only one person who could have the power to take the sins of the world and place them on somebody. And who was it? It was God. In a sense, we forced the Father, well, we didn't force because it was their choice, to kill his only son. Are you catching it? We don't have that power. By the choice that they've made, God the Father says, I will take the sins of the world and plunge it into my son and watch him bleed to death. Now, if you are a parent, if you are a parent, you understand if somebody mistreats you, hurts you, if, if, if you were killed, that would be hard. I mean, we'd, none of us like to be mistreated. But could you imagine being forced or even having to make the choice to kill your child? Especially if it's your only child? I think of Brittany. Brittany's the only child, right? What if there came a point where you were asked to sacrifice your only child? This was what God did. Remember, Abraham stopped. And according to Jasher, there's this dialogue in heaven that's happening. And the angels are saying, God, how long are you going to let this go with Isaac, with Abraham and Isaac? How long are you going to let this go? You're a merciful God. What is, what's, what's happening? Is he going to kill his own son? Would you really allow that? And God says, no, we're going to stop it right now. But I do wonder, and patriarchs and prophets alludes to this, that if this experience here was for the rest of the universe to see, this is what I am going to go through. But we're not going to stop the sacrifice when I go through it. And you are going to wonder why I plunge a knife in the sins of the world upon my son and let him hang there for hours and let him be spit upon and cursed, why would I allow that? I, I find it funny that some people question, they're like, well, what kind of God is a God that would allow his son or somebody he cares about to hang on the cross? And I, and I said, do you realize that he probably was, was struggling more than Jesus? Maybe not physically, but he is watching the person he loves the most being tortured. This thing is a little example of what Jesus did for you. That's what the story is here for. Now, to end this up, there is a phrase in here that comes later, and it's Jehovah Jireh. Have you ever heard that name, Jehovah Jireh? Now, that's not the actual Hebrew. It's, well, depending on how you want to say his name, Adonai, Yahweh, whatever. 
um, you say, some people just say Adonai because they do not want to say his name, or Hashem, which means the name. But in our context, we say Jehovah Jireh. And it's translated, the Lord will provide. Now, this is really cool to me. Now, you know that I think a little bit differently, but to me, it's exciting. So if you don't think it's exciting, then shame on you. No, I'm just joking. So the, I was doing a study on the word provide. And I had always been under the, the, the impression that to provide means to give, right? If I'm providing food, I give food, or that's what it means to provide. Well, I did a study in Hebrew, and the word yare comes from the, the word ra'ah which means to see. I said, what? How does provide mean to see? So I looked up the etymology of the word in English. Pro videre, where we get the word video. It also means pro ahead, vider, see. I said, really? That's what provide comes from? Hence the word provision. Huh, vision. What's that? Provision. And what I started realizing in Hebrew thinking is that provide does not mean to give. Provide actually might mean to take away. What God sees, he knows what needs to happen. Hence, he might say, this relationship here is not positive. You parents know this. If you have teenage or young adult and they're in a relationship that you think that is probably not going to end up well. You have a little bit of the foresight to see that's not healthy. Well, guess what? That's what God said. He said, I see ahead. This is what it means the Lord will provide. Hence why I thought Mariah means my Lord sees. Because God saw ahead. But even that much further, if you read in Revelation 13.8, it says this. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, and all whose names have not been written in the, in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who, had, who was slain from the creation of the world. Was he slain at creation? It says here. In 1 Peter chapter 1, it says this. For you know that it was not with perishable things... That such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. The foresight happened way before what God would have to do when he would sacrifice his son. The Lord provides means he sees ahead. So as you question, is God really providing for me if I lose a job, if I lose a boyfriend or girlfriend, maybe even if somebody dies? All the promises with the Lord providing, Jehovah Jireh, is he sees ahead. And he knows the end. And he has made provision for it.
Let's pray. Father, we know that you provide. We know that you are mighty. We know that, that whether you take away or give, that you see forward. Now, your other promises say you will not forsake us. You will not leave us stranded. Father, let us trust in you as Isaac trusted his dad and as Jesus trusted his dad. And may we honor you with your provision. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.